0: You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. You're listening to Expanding Horizons the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. Robin. Good morning everyone. I'll start off getting some business out of the way. One thing that we are doing is ordering some new badges and there's a choice of magnet or pin if you would like a, a better name badge than what you have now. This is an order form. It does cost money but you know if you really don't want to pay then you can talk to Mary or someone about that. But the main thing is, if you'd like to order, this will be passed around during the service. So please print your name if you'd like a name badge. they will be like a little bar and uh, with the, the logo and the name quite clearly printed. Plastic with a choice of magnet or pin. I'm informed that a lot of the ladies like the magnet, not the pin, because it uh, doesn't damage the, uh, the linen or the silk. So I'll pass that around. Now, another thing to mention, on the 21st of February, that's this Wednesday, we have our monthly Words of Spirit session when we reflect on some holy words from a great variety of artistic works and scriptures. I can let people know that next week we're here and the young people are going to be coming along. The following week, 3rd of March, there's going to be an 11.30 service at the Shady Grove Chapel in the Hills. Please bring a plate of lunch if you're going to come to that. For those who were involved in ruggers, just have a look in the notices for a meeting on 4th of March. Also, there is a national Unitarian organisation because each city tends to do its own things to a large extent we don't have a lot of interaction although uh, that may be increasing. In any case they are trying to work out what sort of training needs or preferences the different congregations in Australia have. So there's a survey they're putting out we thought maybe it was a bit of a waste to put it out to absolutely everybody either have a look on the notice board Or inquire with Mary in the office on Monday if you'd like to take part in that survey. For example, express interest in some training to take services or anything. I'm not sure what they're going to offer. That's the point of the survey. So Margaret and the Terrace Singers, who uh, frequent this place, are going to be presenting a show with a Broadway theme, some beautiful singing, on the Sunday the 3rd of March. So for those who aren't going up to the hills for the service there, there'll be at 12 o'clock a concert here, which will be lovely. And uh, we'll repeat that notice uh, next week as well. There is actually a couple more that I'd like to mention. Sunday the 25th of February, so that's next Sunday, in the evening there's going to be one of these interfaith gatherings. I know that a couple of us are Reasonably regular attenders of these events, but this one's going to be at the Colebrook Reconciliation Park, Shepherd's Hill Road, Eden Hills. And uh, Alan Edwards, uh, one of the Ghana Kokucha elders, will be uh, leading the event. It'll be a BYO food and seating sort of outdoor event and I think quite special in terms of interfaith gathering and reconciliation. So again, it'll be in the notices, but that is 4pm on Sunday the 25th for those interested. And I'm also going to encourage people to book uh, perhaps a group excursion for a public lecture by an Israeli historian who's visiting Adelaide. This is really quite special because you don't get this sort of level of analysis and experience very often. Professor Ilan Pape is speaking in Adelaide on Thursday 7th of March at 6.30pm. So again you can uh, look in the notices or I'm sure you could search online uh, Professor Ilan Pape P A W P E and uh, he's he is really an eminent historian in relation to the Palestine Israel conflict so that is that would be wonderful if we get a group going along maybe we can go out afterwards for a a drink and discuss it. That would be lovely. But we can talk more about that another time. So sorry, a lot of notices, but it's worth mentioning. Now, it is also very important to mention that everyone is welcome here, regardless of your background, ethnicity, sexuality, and so on. And it's a beautiful group. Um, We meet on the traditional lands of the Ghana people. Let us respect their elders past and present. Now, We come together as a community, and one significant aspect of the way we relate to each other is that we welcome each other without judgment, and in the presentations that we have and in the conversations we have afterwards, there will no doubt be things we agree or disagree with, but we can glean what truth we can from what is presented, and we can do that without judging those who have different beliefs from our own. We're very fortunate today because we have Shaul, to use his Hebrew name. We'll deal with that in a moment. And we're going to interview him. I'm just going to set him up with a microphone. Well, thank you for visiting us today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure. I don't get out much these days.
0: One thing I'd like to clear up to begin with, I have your name listed originally as Shaul, a Jewish name, but you seem to be commonly known by the name Paul.
1: That's right, I am Jewish, and Shaul was my given name. As you know, I did most of my missionary work with non-Jewish people. When I started travelling among the Greeks, my media advisor told me to take on a Greek name. So I called myself Pavlos. In Rome, they pronounced it Pavlos. Later on, in England, they cut it back to Paul. I don't mind what you call me. As long as you don't call me after (laughs) 9pm.
0: All right. Now, I'm I'm interested uh, in this event that changed the course of world history, in a way. Uh, You had an experience on the road to Damascus. That's right. Well, I just want to go back a bit to set the scene. You took on the role of persecuting Jewish people who believed Yeshua was the Messiah, right?
1: That's right. I bet I was very zealous in trying to stop this talk about the Messiah because I just didn't believe the Messiah would come to raise up our nations and then be killed like a common criminal.
0: Although your writings suggest that you were a Pharisee. That's right. Now, out of the two major parties in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees were the more liberal of the two, weren't they?
1: Well, they were, but I was on the stricter end of the spectrum.
0: Mm. And you say the chief priest asked you to go up to Damascus some three or four days' journey to basically kidnap some Jews who were following Yeshua. I'm just wondering, since the high priest was a Sadducee, why he would have asked a Pharisee to do this job?
1: Well, I had friends in high places, you know. My father was a Roman citizen. As to why the high priest asked me to do it, I don't know. You'd have to ask him.
0: Well, that's a bit difficult given that he died about 1,900 years ago. But
1: <laughs> Not my problem.
0: No. All right. Well, why would the high priest in Jerusalem ask anyone to go to a non-Jewish city and bring back Jews to Jerusalem for punishment? I mean, wasn't it enough of a job to hunt down followers of Yeshua in Jerusalem if that's what the high priest was trying to stamp out?
1: Well, again, I don't know the motivations behind it. All I know is it gave me a nice break from Jerusalem.
0: Mm, Anyway, uh, you're on the road to Damascus and suddenly you have this amazing vision or something. Can you describe that?
1: Well, it's been written about a million times. But basically, Yeshua appeared to me in a flash of light and made it clear to me, that I had a mission to spread the news that he was the Messiah to everyone, not just Jewish people, and that the important thing was to have faith in Yeshua.
0: Now, in one of your writings, whether it was you or someone writing on your behalf, you say that your companions saw the vision but didn't see the voice or didn't hear the voice, but in another description you say that they didn't see the vision but they did hear the voice. Uh, How can you explain that contradiction? Typo. Oh, okay. fair enough. Um, now, you didn't have a, a history of having these sort of visions, did you? Maybe a history in the family of having visions.
1: What are you insinuating?
0: Well, I was just wondering if you did a Barnaby, ended up on the road, you know. What's weird?
1: You know what I mean?
0: <laughs>
1: no, I don't. But what I saw and heard was as real as if Yeshua had been standing in front of me. Well,
0: given that you've never met him in the flesh, how did you know that it was him in the vision?
1: I can't recall exactly, but I think he introduced himself at the outset.
0: We are running out of time, but can we just deal with one more topic? How did you get on with James, originally Yaakov or Yaqub, Yeshua's brother, who took over the leadership of the Yeshua movement um, after the crucifixion
1: wouldn't say anything against him where we differed was that he had no interest or attitude in marketing to non-jewish people in terms of getting people to believe in yeshua as the messiah i could see that was where the big growth market was and i was right billions of christians would agree with me
0: i see well thanks very much paul thanks for your insight Oh welcome. Now go to a time where we have the opportunity to share in front of each other our joys and concerns. today about a turning point in the history of Christianity. And even if you're not of that tradition, it has had such a profound impact on the world, and certainly Christianity, that I think it is worth dwelling upon today. And in any case, the tension between the mission of Paul And his relationship to the original group of followers of Yeshua in Jerusalem raises questions of faith and how to live well. So let's go back 2,000 years ago to Jerusalem. It was a a Jewish city under Roman occupation, remembering too that there were Jewish groups in many cities of the Roman Empire. In the early 30s, Yeshua is crucified His family and followers are shocked, but they believe they have been with a Messiah, a saviour and a guide for the Jewish people, and they just can't let go of that. The disciples chosen by Yeshua continue in a prominent role, and by tradition, Peter is said to have taken on a leadership role. Within a fairly short space of time, however, Yeshua's brother, James, takes over leadership of the group in Jerusalem. The Roman historian Josephus refers to his execution by the authorities in the year 62, presumably on charges relating to his leadership of an increasingly influential heretical group, but we don't really know. Just a couple of points about language to begin with. James, of course, is one of those weird English derivations from Jacob and originally Yaakov or Yaqub. So... How they come up with James, I don't know. There is a long story, but... Secondly, there are sometimes references you hear to the early church in Jerusalem. And I think it's worth clarifying that it's not as if James and his family built a church with a cross on it, as in a building. The word church is translated from the Greek, ekklesia, meaning the group of people who are the believers. So when you hear the about the early church, it's really that early group Of believers, the the Yeshua movement within the Jewish population of Jerusalem. And of course, they would have continued to go to local synagogues and even to the temple, the great temple in Jerusalem, and possibly they met in people's homes as well to dwell on the particular teachings of Yeshua. So, what I've said so far would be supported by most scholars, but once we get to the next level of detail, we are hugely reliant on the writings preserved in the Christian Bible which, as you know, are only a selection of a much greater range of material written about Yeshua and his teaching. Now, in the Charlie Brown comic, Linus has been studying the letters of Paul, and although he finds them a bit interesting, he he also feels guilty about reading someone else's mail. Uh, But but since a great world religion was hugely influenced by these letters, I think we need to press on guilt-free. So I'll put up on the screen a selection of early Christian writings. This is a modification of a previous list I presented last year because I keep changing my guesswork on the publication dates of some of these writings, depending on my latest research. But just a a few things I want to highlight. As I pointed out before, the book attributed to Mark was written quite a bit earlier than those attributed to Matthew, Luke and John, even though if you read the Christian Bible chapter by chapter, you come across Matthew first rather than Mark. Secondly, it's really important to stress that our earliest surviving Christian writings, even though we're talking about usually finding copies of the earliest writings, they are from Paul, so the Anglicisation of Pavlos, the name by which Shaul was known in the Greek-speaking world, which is essentially most of the Eastern Mediterranean in, in that century. And Greek was the preferred language of the educated elite, whether they be Roman, Jewish or whatever, because of the Greek culture, which was still dominant after the Greek empire had subsided and uh, in a sense taken over by the Romans. It is enormously significant that Paul had never met Yeshua, nor had he learnt Yeshua's teaching from those that Yeshua taught. On his own account... He had been a Jew from a significant family in a provincial city, Tarsus, who had moved to Jerusalem. Based on his numerous letters and those published in his name, up to and including the 60s, Yeshua's biographical details were not seen by Paul to be as significant as the theological implications of the Messiah having arrived. So he was more concerned about the meaning of it rather than the details of of the life. The account of the ministry of Yeshua presented in the book of Mark and the embellished biographies in the books of Matthew, Luke and John came decades after Paul was writing. And they may have been influenced by Paul's understanding of Yeshua, but Paul was not relying on their biographical details. You might note on the list I've referred to the book of Acts as a pro-Paul history, since it was written to celebrate Paul's ultimately successful mission to take the story of the Jewish Messiah to the non-Jewish Mediterranean world. It's quite telling that it stops at the time of Paul's imprisonment in about the year 60 because it was a couple of years after that that a very significant event happened that James was executed in Jerusalem. Uh, So this long-standing successor to Yeshua in terms of that movement that messianic movement in Jerusalem, was killed, and uh, Simeon, or Shimon, who took over, was probably another of Yeshua's brothers. So it was quite the, the family dynasty for a while. The role of James altogether is downplayed. So Acts becomes, here's the Christian history, and it's all about what happened outside of Jerusalem, with a couple of references to the interaction with Jerusalem, and that's what I wanted to explore today. In the list of Christian writings I've presented here, there's a big question mark about the timing of the letter from James. Now, it probably was not written by James himself because there's not really a suggestion that James was sufficiently educated to write the quite sophisticated Greek, which we have in the earliest copy of that document. So it may well have been someone writing on his behalf, but here's the interesting thing. It seems that either James was responding to Paul, or Paul was responding to James, because the language used when they talk about faith and works is exactly the same, and it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. One would think that either James was written perhaps in the 40s at the same time or earlier than a lot of Paul's writings, and that Paul responded to what was coming out of Jerusalem, or many decades after Paul's writing, the Jerusalem group thought, well, the the record needed to be put straight, and they are responding to Paul. But I'll get back to that in a moment. So it's very difficult to uh, assess the timing when ultimately we're going on copies of works. Another point to note in this list is that there is a distinction between the letters of Paul and those which are written in Paul's name. So out of the 13... 14 if you're Eastern Orthodox. The 13 works of Paul, we already have a Pauline in the group, so I'm trying not to be confusing. Out of the 13 works of Paul, seven are considered as uh, genuinely of Paul. And I'll say something too about this practice of using other people's names for your religious or theological work. Although you might think of it as simply forgery, it was actually a fairly common practice in this era when there was no central reference point. You couldn't check on the internet whether something really happened or not. There was no copyright. So to give credibility to one's point of view, one could always write in the name of whatever prominent person one would think would add weight to the work. So take a current example. If I was to write a book about the seven principles of Unitarianism, Yawn? Who's going to read that? But if I wrote the book but said that Taylor Swift was the author, (laughs) now that would sell millions. (laughs) So that's what they were doing in the first century. When they wanted to put their point of view, they would take a leader that kind of fitted the attitude they were expressing, and that would give it more weight. So anyway, I've uh, put a list there of what are considered the authentic letters of Paul, and they are certainly sufficient to give uh, a good picture of what he believed. So what was Paul's story? He was definitely Jewish. He must have come from a significant family for his father to have had Roman citizenship. Now, there's something odd about the setting of that famous revelation on the road to Damascus. It is strange to think that the high priest of Jerusalem would say to anyone, now you go off to another province and kidnap some Jews because I don't like what they believe, and you bring them back here and I'll punish them. The Romans could do that, but I'm not sure at all. There's very little historical evidence to suggest that the Jewish priesthood could go around arresting people, possibly within Jerusalem, but certainly not, in in far-flung cities so that's a bit strange and as was mentioned earlier Paul's professed faction within the Jewish realm was different to that of the high priest so again you would have expected the high priest to pick one of his own faction to do such a controversial sort of mission So, Paul experiences some kind of revelation on the road to Damascus. Let's set aside the contradictions in how the experience is described in different parts of scripture. But he believed he had a communication from Yeshua. And he believed that this vision gave him equal authority to those who had walked and talked with Yeshua during his lifetime. Paul actually gives a list of people to whom Yeshua had appeared after the crucifixion. In the first letter to the Corinthians, he said that Yeshua had appeared to Peter, the 12, the 500, James, all the apostles, and then Paul. So, and it's done in that equal fashion. So it's interesting. It could be that Paul was inferring that Yeshua appeared in the same way in a non-fleshly form to all of those other people and remember this is written before all of those biographical books that came decades later which had details of fleshly reappearance the you know the uncorrupted body of Jesus walking around and uh, and then ascending to heaven and so on so this is decades before all of that that he's talking about appearances on the other hand it could be that Paul simply believes that even if a physical Yeshua reappeared to those various people in Jerusalem, that the vision he had put him on the same status because he was so sure that it was actually the, the being uh, Yeshua talking to him. So his, his understanding of the teaching and significance of Yeshua crucially departed, I believe, from the beliefs of Yeshua's followers in Jerusalem. In several respects. And the the departure point, really, was Paul being inspired by this vision to proclaim the mission of Yeshua to non-Jews as well as Jews. It's not something that the Jewish priesthood went around doing. And there are a couple of points in the Christian scripture where this tension erupts. So even though most of your New Testament is written as a pro-Paul sort of history, there are points where it's inevitable that the authors must deal with this tension. The book of Acts chapter 15 and the letter to the Galatians chapter 2 describe a conference which took place in Jerusalem. The commonly accepted date is year 48. According to the pro-Paul writings, Paul was granted a dispensation by James and the conference to take the message of Yeshua to the non-Jews. So it was all debated and this novel approach of taking the mission to the non-Jews was approved by the conference. The biggest barrier was undoubtedly the requirement that believers be circumcised. So this is a group of Jewish men in conference saying Yeshua was circumcised, we're all circumcised, if somebody's going to be a follower of Yeshua, they have to be circumcised. And by the way, I don't have a slide for this. And Paul was saying, oh, no, no, look, it's, it's not necessary anymore. There was a compromise in a sense because it was agreed, you could say, declared by James that a letter would go out to the converts who were going to follow, a, follow the teaching of Yeshua that they should, quote, abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. Now, they are clear references to not eating food which has been sacrificed to non-Jewish gods, which was happening all over the Roman Empire, and eating meat from which the blood had been drained. In other words, kosher meat. Sexual immorality, I don't need to explain. You know all about that. So there was another significant confrontation, and it's described a little bit after that, a description of the conference, in the letter to Galatians, chapter 2. So Peter is referred by his Aramaic nickname here, Kephas, meaning the rock. Petros itself means the rock, and uh, from that we get Peter. Now, Peter you would expect to be aligned with the Jerusalem view. But in the story, he sits down to eat in Antioch, another city to the north, with Paul and the non-Jews, non-Jews. Now, the implication is that he couldn't comply with Jewish kosher food laws by doing that. But Peter's quite happy to chow down with them until there are visitors from Jerusalem. And the pro-Paul author of the letter describes them as, quote, men from James. So that sounds pretty heavy. Men from James are coming to sort of police things. So upon seeing that he's been caught out breaking the Jewish food laws, Peter jumps up and separates himself from the non-Jewish eaters. And Paul then basically accuses Peter of being a hypocrite. So regardless of what one thinks of the details of the story, it does seem to highlight this ongoing tension between Paul's mission and the continuing Jewish practices and beliefs of the Christians in Jerusalem. And Incidentally, it's not the first reference in the pro-Paul writings to the Christian Jews in Jerusalem as the circumcision party, as if that's what defined them. He doesn't talk about them as observant Jews or Jews that follow Yeshua or something like that. I think it's telling that he chooses that to be the distinguishing feature. And now we come to what appears to be a really significant difference between Paul and James. Paul seems to be clear that people are made right, or in the old language, justified, by faith in Yeshua as the Messiah. On the other hand, the letter of James seems to make it equally clear that the important thing is to carry out deeds of good work, indeed in in conformity with the Jewish commandments. So from Paul, we have we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And in a slightly more, I guess it's a fundamentalist uh, translation, but the, the meaning is clear, people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And James, on the other hand, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? And then James makes the point, you know, if, if someone's poor, you need to help them out. That's what it's really all about. And as I've said before, the passages there use the same language exactly when they're talking about faith and works. So I think there is a real difference uh, between them. And one of them certainly was trying to clarify Uh, what the other had said. Now, to be fair, some scholars, and especially Christians, have found a way of harmonising these passages. This interpretation is that Paul was saying, if you have faith, then you're going to do the right thing in every circumstance anyway. So you don't get extra points for fulfilling the law because, of course, you're going to do that if you have faith. You're going to do the right thing anyway. And according to this interpretation, James is really saying that if you carry out all the command all of the commandments and do good works then it shows that you have faith and interestingly both of them used abraham being willing to give his son the knife as a sacrifice as an example so paul is saying well wow, that was such great faith in god and james is saying well you see he was actually doing something tangible and physical to demonstrate his faith. So anyway, the winners write history. And uh, in, as I said, in the New Testament, my view is that the leadership of James in Jerusalem is somewhat downplayed. Um, Paul and his successors won converts all through the Roman provinces, and they found wealthy backers in Rome And as the theology of Paul developed, the the promise of a happy afterlife and a personal relationship with Jesus as a heavenly friend carried with it a special psychological appeal. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, although there is a story of some of the Christian Jews fleeing Jerusalem before the massacre, there had been a Jewish revolt in the 60s which was utterly crushed, brutally crushed by the Romans in the year 70. And practically the non-Roman population was exterminated. So it is quite possible that most of the Christian Jews were wiped out at that point. But uh, there is also evidence that some fled to the east Um, further towards the edges and maybe beyond the edges of the Roman Empire. But certainly as Christianity developed it was that which was written about by Paul and his supporters which we came to know as uh, the Christian belief system. The other problem for James and his followers is that he was basically saying we've lived with the Messiah and the Messiah came with a message of renewal about the spirit of the law. So continue with the Torah commandments, rituals and festivals, but do good, look after the poor and live the right way. So in a sense it was easy for Other Jewish people to say well you know we're going to live by the Torah anyway we're going to follow the rituals and festivals we're going to live a good life because that's what we're commanded to do anyway so we don't need to sign up to the fact that this person you know was the Messiah we're going to do those things anyway do you see what I mean there wasn't enough of a bridge to kind of draw people in because what was being asked of people was to do what they were meant to be doing anyway at the risk of being partial, um, I'm not going to go into some of the very worthy things that Paul said in his letters. His, some of his wisdom and moral instruction is definitely uh, worth listening to. But let us consider, from the letter from James, some of the wisdom that's expressed. You know, in some ways, it's a lot like the old Jewish wisdom literature which for hundreds of years was quite a tradition of writing about life in such a way as to put it in perspective and to call on people to be just in their dealings with others. And it could be that an older text was renewed and adopted by someone in the Christian Jewish movement in Jerusalem. There were a couple of references in the letter to our Lord Jesus Christ, but most of it talks about relying on God, having faith in God, not having faith in Yeshua specifically. So let's, let's hear some of the wisdom that's expressed in that letter. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. The flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich person fade away in the midst of their pursuits. And my comment, in other words, let's have some perspective on life. Let's not be anxious chasing after riches and properties and fine clothes because it will all pass away soon enough. The really valuable things in life are our relationships. More quotes from James. If you really fulfill the law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So from this, one can conclude that with a foundation of self-respect and self-awareness, we should be moving through life with kindness for others. And following that very good advice, to be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. To follow that advice, one needs to have a grip on one's passions. It's impossible to ask, just get rid of your passions, but we need to be conscious of those impulses we have, especially when they impinge on others, and we need to have a grip on them. Meditation helps. Mindfulness helps. And however you do it, maintaining a consciousness of what we're doing moment to moment is essential if you are to achieve the goodness to which all of the holy books call us. Now, this one is a sing-along, a happy finish, to our celebration today, funiculi, funicula. Uh, the words are there, folks. If you wish to sing along, or clap, yeah. or stomp. And <laughs> so do I. And so do I. We hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.